You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Also to mention that we have a bulletin sheet, not for the day, but for um, the month, and there are details of the services and uh, what the themes are and the pastoral groups and so on in this. So please do take one of these and keep it in your Bible or stick it on your notice board or, or whatever, and it's there for you. Now, we're going to turn to Psalm 52. It's on page 574, and it's entitled, For the Director of Music, a Maskell of David, when Doig the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. In fact, um, I want to read that first of all. So we'll go back to 1 Samuel chapter 22, and you'll see the context of this psalm. <clears throat> and this is when David is, is fleeing, King David is fleeing from Saul. And I want to uh, read from verse 6. 1 Samuel 22, verse 6, on page 294. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gebeah, with all his officials standing around him. Saul said to them, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you've all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, None of you is concerned about me or tells my son or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. But Doig the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitab at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, and his father's whole family, who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitab. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doig, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doig the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword knob the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. But Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, escaped and fled to join David. 
He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to to Abiathar, That day, when Doig the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. And after this horrendous incident where David himself must have been devastated by what had happened, uh, he wrote this song, Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. You who practice deceit, you love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, O you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at him, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. Now, when you read 1 Samuel and Psalm 52 together, you get the the context of what has happened. And I want us to to look at that and to think about it in terms of our own circumstances, which at first glance, of course, are very, very different. Except this. This is a story and a song about the dangers that the tongue can cause and the harm can cause, that the tongue can cause. And we do have to be very, very careful with our tongues what we say with our hands, what we write, how we communicate and what we communicate. Doi, you see, the Edomite, had lied. He told the truth up to a certain point and then stopped and gave a wrong impression. He boasted about the wrong that he had done. And David, after this, after the death of hundreds of people for which he felt himself personally responsible, he writes this song, and it is a song uh, against Doig. Now, in verse 1, there is a problem. We read uh, the, from the New International Version, and um, I think they've made a mistake in translating. Sometimes that happens. That's why it's always good to compare different versions, because it follows the Syriac version. The NIV follows the Syriac version and not the Hebrew. The Hebrew says, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. And that's a deliberate contrast, a direct contrast. The ESV translates it that way. I actually like the messages version of it. Why do you brag of evil, big man? God's mercy carries the day. And it's a bit trite, uh, maybe, but that's exactly it. David is saying to Doig, you think you're a hero. You think you're a tough guy. You think you're a big person because you've done this. Why are you boasting of your evil? It's God's love that endures all the day. 
Now again, it's easy to say that the love of God endures all the day when things are going really well. How easy is it to say that God's love endures when you're running away, when you yourself, you think yourself responsible for the death of 85 priests, when you've been betrayed, when you're hated, when you're being attacked, when your life is in danger? How do you, how do you come up with this, the steadfast love of God endures all the day? Well, I think what David is, is doing is contrasting the worldview, if you like, or the hope of the unbeliever and the hope of the believer. The hope of the unbeliever is seen in what Doeg did. He boasted about what he'd done. He was self-satisfied and self-confident. Sometimes in our culture, we are told that's what we should be. We should be self-satisfied. We should be confident in ourselves. But the Bible never, ever encourages that. It says we should be like David, having confidence that the love of God endures all the day, whatever the circumstances. We should never boast about evil or boast about what is wrong. Verses 2 to 4 tell us about Doig's tongue and, and tell us how powerful the tongue can be. Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. It cuts. It really cuts. You who practice deceit, you love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, oh, you deceitful tongue. We maybe don't like to be judged by what we say, but we will be, and we are. Our tongues can destroy. They can be immensely powerful. They boast. They deceive. They lie. Even Doig here, he told the truth. If you go back to 1 Samuel 22, he told the truth up to a point. But he told enough of the truth. If he didn't tell the rest of the truth to get uh, Ahimelech in great, great trouble. Now, if you doubt how powerful the tongue is, let's do the New Testament teaching on this. Now, and I want to, to read this because it's really the best commentary on it. Almost nothing more to say. Uh, James chapter 3, you'll find it on page 1214. James 3, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small, part, spa, small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. That's got to be one of the most frightening verses in the whole Bible. The tongue is a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, 
we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. What we say says a great deal about who we are. How we use our tongues, how we use speech, how we communicate, how we write, how we use words says a great deal about our character. And I don't think there's anything causes more harm in the world or more harm in the church than a tongue which is out of control. I'm not boasting when I say this, but I know how to cause harm to lots of you. It's very easy. Just drop a little bit of poison in here, a little bit of gossip there, a half-truth there. It can so easily be done. Sometimes it's almost enough to make you take a vow of silence, uh, except that doesn't work either. But I think we need to reflect upon what we're doing with our tongues. Now, it's easy for us to reflect on how other people uh, hurt us and have done us harm. We need to think about the good that we can do with our tongues and the harm that we do. Sexual immorality causes a great deal of problems within the Christian church. Greed causes a great deal of problems within the Christian church. Pride and boasting causes a great deal of problems within the Christian church. But I'll tell you something that's done as much devastation and harm as anything I've ever seen, and that's gossip. Gossip is an absolute killer, which is why uh, the New Testament so strongly warns against us. The tongue can be incredibly, incredibly destructive. And I think it's appropriate for all of us as we prepare to take communion that we do confess our sin and we say, Lord, forgive my careless words. Forgive my boasting and my self-justification. You're not Doig the Edomite who's caused 85 priests to be killed. You're maybe not in that league. But your tongue could do as much damage. And, you know, sometimes we just need to take a look. and we, Sometimes we need to pray that the Lord would show us our, our sins. And sometimes we need to realize just how much that, that narkiness, that bitterness, that gossip, that innuendo, just how much harm it really has done. And look, in, in James it says, it corrupts us. We are poisoned by it. It's not just that we poison other people and we remain detached or pure. We are poisoned by it. There's nothing does you so much harm as your tongue. And there's, uh, I think, you know, a warning for us all. Now, the tongue can do it a great deal of good as well. Uh, I want to share with you just something that I was quite surprised and quite encouraged by. As you know, I do a fair bit of writing, and um, sometimes I get this, I get it wrong. Maybe many times I get it wrong. The tone, what's said, and so on. Well, uh, somebody who was a Christian got very, very upset at something that I wrote and uh, started writing and saying things personally about me that I discovered it went all over 
um, various Christian radio stations in the U.S. and elsewhere. And uh, it just, I just thought, well, that's just too bad. Uh, except uh, today, actually, this morning, I got sent an apology from this person. And it wasn't just an apology that he made to me, but he made it in public. And it was so well done and so gracious. And he said, please only follow me when I follow Christ. When I spoke in this way, it was wrong. It was not following Christ. Now, something like that does a tremendous amount of good. But the opposite, when we, when we curse people and when we attack people and when we complain and we grumble and we moan all the time, just think of the harm that it does. We're maybe not doig, but I don't, I, I will say this about myself, and forgive me for saying this about you, I don't think there's any one of us here who could look in the mirror of God's word and say, Lord, I'm a perfect person. I've kept my tongue totally under control. You haven't. And thank the Lord that Jesus forgives us for all our sins, but we need to recognize what those sins are because it helps us as we learn to control self-control and as we try and become more Christ-like. One other thing just about uh, Doig that is very, very interesting, when you go back to, um, move back from James, go back into Psalm 52, it's interesting how it's described, uh, or rather how he is described, where he says, he did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. When we are overtly critical, when we are the people who are constantly putting down other people, why are we doing it? We're trying to build ourselves up by destroying others. That is not the way of Christ. That is surely something that is wrong. He grew strong by destroying others, and he trusted in his own great wealth. Doig had great wealth, and he trusted in it. He didn't trust in God. I read uh, this week Martin Luther in his table talk saying this. I thought this was brilliant. God only, and not wealth, maintains the world. Riches merely make people proud and lazy. Great wealth and money cannot still hunger, but rather occasion more dearth. For where rich people are, their things are always dear. Moreover, money makes no man right merry, but much rather pensive and full of sorrow. For riches, says Christ, are thorns that prick people. Yet is the world so mad that it sets therein all its joy and felicity. Well, I think we might find that if you went home tonight and you switched on the television and you looked at almost any program, gossip, blasphemous language, violent language, hate speech, all those kinds of things, contempt, and the love of riches are deeply, deeply characteristic of the culture that we live in. And we have to live opposite to that. We have to, as we come to know Jesus Christ, not boast about these things and use our tongues for good and not for evil. Now, I want to see um, the opposite side of that in a moment, but we're going to sing Psalm 52. Uh, we'll sing the whole psalm. Uh, and John is going to lead us in that. And I've, the tune is Jackson, I think.
Why do you boast of wickedness, you man of power and might? Why boast all day, O you who are disgraceful in God's sight? And we'll stand and sing. Amen. Psalm 52 and verse 5 says this. Now, now this is where God acts. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. David is telling Doi what will happen to him. I was uh, down in the center of town, what used to be the HMV shop. I don't know if it's still there. And I went in one time to kind of have a look at some of the uh, CDs and so on. And I loved it when I went in because... Uh, Johnny Cash suddenly started booming out of the speakers. And it wasn't just any old Johnny Cash song. It was uh, God's going to cut you down. And he had just this deep, deep, deep voice. And it was played at full volume. And I just looking around, everyone was kind of looking a wee bit shocked. Because it's very explicit, very direct. God's going to cut you down. And it just, I mean, I wondered what people thought. I almost felt like starting a sermon. Uh, and uh, an open air at that point. I just thought it was a great, great song. And if you've seen, go and Google it or YouTube it or whatever and see the video that he's got, people like Trent Razor and, and, and others, um, Bono and others, fo- lots of f- photographs. It's fabulous imagery. The image is as good is as, good as the song. And it, it, it is this, you, you mighty person, God is going to cut you down. doesn't matter who you are. God is going to cut you down. You've set yourself up there. God is going to bring you down. Doig the Edomite. God is going to bring you down. And that results in something very, very different in terms of the tongue. Because the last part of the psalm talks about how there's a tongue that's triumphant that will sing. Now, they will laugh at him saying, verse 6, laugh here is not vindictive or malicious. It's not contradicting Proverbs 24, 17. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice. It's not kind of saying, gotcha, you deserved it. It is, it is seeing what God has done and rejoicing and exalting in God. Because David, is, it's almost, this is great faith on his part because he's seeing nothing but trouble. He's seeing Christians, if you like, being massacred. He's seeing himself in enormous danger. He's seeing God's church being destroyed, and he says, don't boast of evil. I rejoice in God's everlasting love. God is going to cut you down. God is going to bring justice. It's not a vindictive thing. It's a joyful response to God's action. And he says, you see and you fear because of that. You, you, you grasp and you understand that God is the stronghold. Out with God, there is no stronghold. And that's why verses 8 and 9, the last two verses, speak about the true security, the contrast between the flourishing tree and the uprooted tree. He's saying to Doig the Edomite, you can be like an uprooted tree. You're gonna, you, it's there, it looks good, but its root has gone, and it will soon wither and die. But David is like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. He, he's planted there and it looks as though there's very little life in it and very little fruit on it. It looks as though there's a lot of problems, but because he's rooted in God, he's going to be like that olive tree that flourishes. He's settled in the presence of God, sure of God's love, which never fails, always hoping in the name of God and having a tongue which does not curse, but praises him even in the presence of enemies.
One of the old Puritans, I can't remember which, I picked this up somewhere, uh, but in speaking about this says um, that the olive tree is fruitful and not destructive. It provides oil for the lamp, its fruits were nourishing and wholesome, and it had healing properties. This is like the Christian. The Christian is to show light, the Christian is to feed, the Christian is to heal. As we are fed by Christ, so we feed and help others. There's a destructive use of the tongue, and there is a very positive use of the tongue. It's used to proclaim the the light of the gospel. It's used to feed people with words to, to, to encourage and to strengthen and to embolden and to challenge. It's used to heal. Sometimes wounds can be very, very deep, deep in our hearts, deep in our minds. But words really can help if they come from a heart that means what they they say, words can be incredibly helpful and encouraging. I just maybe make a small application here. When did you last deliberately set out to go and encourage somebody? You know, we're fairly good, some of us anyway, are fairly good when something's not right to make a complaint, either to the person themselves or complain about them to other people, to retaliate to seek to wound, to seek to hurt. But when did you last set out to encourage someone, not so that you could gain something. I don't mean going into work tomorrow and saying to your boss, oh, aren't you wonderful? This is a great company to work for. Uh, That's not what I mean. Not trying to manipulate. But when did you last think of, of someone saying, you know, I'd just like to go and encourage them. I'd like to take a bit of time. I'd like to go and have a coffee with them. I'm going to write them a letter. I'm going to tell them something. That really encourages. Now surely all of us have been recipients of that to some degree. And how much did it help us? And how much did it encourage us? I know many times that I felt really battered and bruised. And then this, uh, an email has come or a letter has come that doesn't have red ink on it. And you, you open it and you look and, and someone says, I just want to thank you for this, this and this. And it really encourages you. But whether you have something to thank someone for or whatever, maybe we should use our tongue to build up. We use our tongue to praise God. We use our tongue not to destroy, but to encourage. Because our true security is in Christ. Do we care if someone is doing better than we are? Not at all. Because we're not in competition with them. Our society seems to flourish by competition. But we don't. What did John the Baptist say? He must increase, I must decrease. But how many of us use Christianity as a, as a means to try and advance ourselves? But we don't need to advance ourselves because our security is in Christ. In your name, I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. So you set up those two things, the very destructive tongue and the constructive tongue. And you might say, well, I'm, you know, okay, I'm going to try and you know, be positive, I'm going to try and speak better and so on, and I'm going to tell you, you'll fail. So we could leave it there, but I don't want to leave it there because we're thinking about what Jesus did and how he reacted and what he has done for us. And I want you to turn to Isaiah 53 just to to finish this. It's It's, of course, the prophecy of Christ on the cross. Isaiah 53, verse 1, who has believed our message And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Isn't that interesting? Again, notice the way that the Bible constantly uses the same image. He's a root out of dry ground. There's nothing to attract us to him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Let me just stop there. Have you ever been despised when people use their mouths to mock you and to ridicule you and to say how pathetic you are and how weak you are and how useless you are? They did this to Jesus. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. We looked at Jesus and we said, well, he he must have done something really wrong. He's been punished by God. And Isaiah goes on to say, yes, he was, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then especially this verse. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her, shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now that is used in the New Testament to warn us, to encourage us, that we don't have to fight back all the time. That we don't have to constantly battle with our tongues. And here is Jesus who was absolutely perfect, who is the son of God, who had done no wrong, who had the most unjust trial and the cruelest death, and he kept quiet. For our sakes, he kept quiet. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. When you are tempted to say, I am going to get them for what they said. You know, it's a bit like one of the curses of the internet, isn't it? Is kind of the instant way that you can respond. And once you press that send button on that email or that tweet or that Facebook post or whatever it is, it's gone and it's not coming back. That's like our mouths as well, isn't it? Once you've said that sentence to someone, you can't say, oh, sorry, let me take that back and you forget ever that you heard that. It's gone. It's been said. It's been done. We want to respond. We want to retaliate. We want to react. And, and of course we have to speak. And of course there are things that we're going to say and so on. But we need to remember what Christ did And we need to have our faith in a God who will put everything right. Sometimes, by speaking, we only add fuel to the fire. Sometimes we need to just look away and say, Lord, you alone are judge. You know my heart. You know what I've said. You know what others have said. And I do think that when we, we look at Jesus and we think how he poured out his life for us, That helps us in how we deal with things. Now, just a couple of things. First of all, if you are guilty of misusing your tongue, and I want to say to you, you are. 
You really are. And probably most of you, and myself included in this, we don't realize just how much harm we have done. Do you know, in some ways, you'd have been better if you'd gone up and slapped the person. You'd been better if you'd gone up and hit them. But because you use your tongue, you think, oh, that's okay, I wasn't violent. But you may have done them a whole lot more harm and done yourself a whole lot more harm. And if that is the case, what we have to do is we say, if we say we have no sin, we're lying. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. So here's the thing. You can come before God, and I said, you can't erase what you have said. You can't erase what you have written. Actually, you can. Because by coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, I am sorry for what I have done. I confess my sin. I repent of my sin. Jesus says, that's why I was silent. That's why I did died. That's what I came for, to forgive you for all your sin. Every sin is forgiven. What you have said, that cruel word, that horrible language, that disgusting lie, that subtle innuendo. I know it, and it was dreadful, but I came to die to forgive those sins. So you can go away forgiven and cleansed and, and refreshed as you take the bread and the wine and you remember what Jesus has done. It's, uh, I think, just a wonderful thing to know, you know, I don't have to carry that guilt anymore. That thing I said, it's gone. Jesus took it. It's gone. But also combined with that is the idea in repentance, and we surely do repent and must repent every day, is an endeavor after new obedience. So we just simply pray, Lord, set a watch before the doors of my mouth. Set a watch before my lips. Not that I will ever be, I want to be completely silent, but help me in what I say. Grant that your word would reflect, uh, that my words rather, would reflect a character in which your Holy Spirit is working. Please don't give up if you find that your speech is not gracious, if you find that you're one of these complaining, moaning people, if you find that there's a bitterness and an anger that's coming out in your speech because there's a bitterness and anger in your heart. Don't give up. Christ came to change us. You may have had the experience, I certainly have, um, many, many times, where you say something and you go, oh no. And you do wish, I mean, I know this expression so well, I wish the ground would open up. I wish I could just click my fingers and just disappear. I wish I'd never said that. And the Lord Jesus, there's nobody, nobody can forgive us or can take that away except Christ. And when we come and we sit at his table, I think it's good, particularly this evening, to remember that he, in his silence, and by his words, and by what he has done, has redeemed us and has, has changed us and has forgiven us. And all of us can walk away from here with a clean slate. And we start again. And we will need to start again, again, and again until we finally get to glory because we're not going to be absolutely perfect until then. But there's just great, great hope for us. I'm like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. Do you know John Newton? 
this writer of Amazing Grace. You know, most of you know the story of how he was a uh, slave trader and so on. One of the things you may not know is that John Newton had a reputation, even amongst slave traders and sailors, as being the most foul-mouthed person you could ever meet. I mean, he really was crude and lewd and vicious, an absolutely horrendous person. And when God saved him, God changed that. Now, it took a lot of time for John Newton But he ended up writing some of the most extraordinary hymns, not just Amazing Grace, with great beauty and with great grace, a tongue that would even embarrass people today. I mean, our vicious, foul-mouthed stand-up comedians, Newton would have given them a run for their money easily. But it was completely changed because he was completely changed. And that is, I think... One of the wonders, the great wonders of what the gospel does. So there's hope for all of us as we repent of what we have said and we pray that God would make us into those who praise him and who speak his word and who do not plot destruction but rather seek to build up and to strengthen and to encourage. May God bless his word to us. Before we um, have the communion, we are going to sing again. We're going to sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love. And as we sing this, let's just reflect upon a man like Doig the Edomite. If he had come to see and understand the depth of God's love, then even he could have been forgiven. But we are forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. So let's stand and sing, How Deep the Father's Love. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.